Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. Um, welcome to our first talk. We are very happy that faculty member from Fine Arts, Eric Lagatuda, has given us his time um, to give a talk about the graphic novel Watchmen. Um, this is sort of one of those landmark books that transformed the art and thinking about comics. And I don't want to talk too much about it because that's what Eric really is going to do. Um, but More we thought than you ever wanted to know. With the, yes, <laughs> with the um, upcoming HBO show that's kind of a spinoff from that universe, this might be a good time um, to um, engage in the conversation about this book. We do have a copy of this book for checkout in the library. It is currently checked out. But also another commercial, um, our Hoopla e-reader app that you can download for free, our librarians can help you, has Watchmen in it. So you can read it on tablets and on, um, on your uh, laptops and on phones. So um, all students have access to that. So with that, I just want to say thank you all for being here. Thank you, Eric. And I'll turn Most it welcome. over to Eric. Thanks. Hey, guys. Hi. <laughs> I know everybody in here, I think, almost. All right, I'm psyched up. I've got blood up to my elbows, veins in my teeth, and my helmet and knee pads securely fastened. Let's get out there and make trouble. This first page is a series of vertical jumps, and so on. These are the first few sentences of the script that eventually became the comic book and graphic novel Watchmen. A comic script like this is often both a description of the words and action that are eventually going to be drawn, but also it's a, it's a letter, it's weird. It's kind of a letter from the writer to the artist, touching on the ideas and attitudes behind the story described in the script. So here, it's clear from the start that these creators had ambition. They knew they were making something different uh, from the get-go, and they knew they were, um, they even hoped, they hoped that it was gonna make trouble. And they must have succeeded on some level, because we're still talking about it today. People still read this book after more than 30 years, and it remains remarkably influential both in the comic book world and the wider culture. People write academic books analyzing Watchmen, and apparently they give lectures about it also. DC thinks highly enough about the book. They've published this amazing um, Absolute Watchmen edition, large size pages, high quality paper, remastered colors. Um, it's a great book if you have 100 bucks you want to plop down. And there's some cool essays in the back also. Um, a couple of other recommended books, uh, Minutes to Midnight, 12 Essays on Watchmen, edited by Richard Bensom. This is a more, uh, uh, oh sorry, uh, this is a good book uh, with a bunch of different perspectives in it. And then uh, Considering Watchmen by Andrew Hoberick is a more academic book, uh, looking at the structure of Watchmen, the politics of the 1980s, and lots of other stuff. A couple more. Uh, the British Invasion by Greg Carpenter, giving a great overview of the historical context in which Watchmen was created. And then a book called Super Gods by Grant Morrison. Oops. Um, ah, thanks. A book uh, called Super Gods by Grant Morrison. I meant to do this. Did it though. Um, both a history of the superhero genre and also a personal memoir of his life as a comic book writer and, of course, his own trippy metaphysical ideas about comics and reality. So I read these books while I was preparing for the lecture, and I recommend all of them. Um, they're certainly influential on my own ideas, and I'm not going to have time to cite every reference, but I wanted to put them up front because there's a lot of stuff I got from these books that came into this. All right. So some of you, I'm sure, may be familiar with the 2009 film of Watchmen, directed by Zack Snyder. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Lots of people debate whether it's a good adaptation of the comic or not. But since my focus is on the comic, that's all I'm going to say about the film today, in case you were wondering. 
Um, I'm going to talk about the story in great detail. And so if you haven't read it before, warned. My apologies to my students who really have no choice in the matter. If you, if when I'm getting up to it, if you want to go la, 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 like that, you know, you can do that. All right. So Alan Moore, the writer of the book. Dave Gibbons, he's the artist who did the pencils and the inks as well as the lettering. Oops, keep doing that. As well as the lettering. And then John Higgins, uh, the colorist on the right, you can see uh, the watercolors laying the original color ideas and color notes on the side over there. All of them are from England, and they certainly look like they're ready to make trouble. And the evidence that they succeeded in that is right there on the back of the book, right? A masterwork representing the apex of artistry, etc., etc. Right? Damon Lindelof, you may know him as the co-creator of Lost, called Watchmen the greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced. My gosh. Here we can see that Watchmen is the only graphic novel listed in Time's um, 100 best English language novels since 1923, right there next to Harper Lee and Virginia Woolf and Philip K. Dick. So I want to give a little historical context at this point for this book that made such a, an impression on people. Alan Moore uh, was part of a trio of British comic book writers who were very influential as young men starting in the mid-1980s, and they all still are to this day. Three boys who grew up reading comic books, especially American superhero comics. They loved those stories, and eventually they outgrew them. As young adults, they were looking for stories with greater depth more psychology, more history, more artistry. Each of them moved away from comics to, for a period, but each in turn was soon offered the opportunity to write stories starring the, some of the characters they loved as children. All three were hired by the American comic book publisher DC Comics in order to bring new life to certain titles that were close to failure, and that they did. Neil Gaiman on the left over there, um, you may know him as the creator of Sandman. Of course, today he's an extremely successful novelist film and television writer and producer. Um, Sandman is based very loosely on an old DC superhero, if you weren't aware of that. Alan Moore, of course, who made a big splash with Swamp Thing uh, right before he began work on Watchmen. And then Grant Morrison, who brought fresh ideas to Animal Man at DC and also to Doom Patrol, and then eventually a thousand other characters at DC and Marvel. Each of these writers, in his own way, took on the task of tearing apart the old superhero stories and stitching together the parts to make something new and better. Carl Jung, Swiss psychologist and interpreter of myths, describes the Ouroboros this way as, quote, a dramatic symbol for the integration and assimilation of the opposite. It is said of the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail, that he slays himself and brings himself to life, fertilizes himself, and gives birth to himself. And so, the writers of the British Invasion, along with American innovators like Frank Miller, in the mid-1980s took it upon themselves to give birth to a new era of superhero stories. Consuming the golden and silver age heroes that they loved as children, they digested them and built new stories from the parts. Aiming these books at a more mature audience and adding layers of depth and significance that were missing from the old stories, works that had been written primarily for children. All right, and so here's Alan Moore, 1983, young radical, hired by Dick Giordano over there. Um, 
to, uh, to bring his revisionist style to the saga of the Swamp Thing. It's hard to overestimate the impact this book had on superhero comics in America and really around the world. A generation of fans was hungering for a more mature take on their favorite heroes and ironically they found it in a book that was about to get canceled because people just weren't reading it and then Alan Moore took over and something changed. So at about the same time DC had acquired the rights to the action hero characters you see here in this ad from DC. They were originally published by Charlton Comics, a company that was sadly about to go belly up in the mid-80s. So Alan Moore quickly wrote up a proposal. Hey, let's do this revisionist thing with the action heroes. How could DC say no to that? Moore had already proven his ability to take a D-list hero and change the whole comic industry, but there was the fear that changing these characters too much, making them too adult, too complex, might reduce their use in future stories. So never let it be said that DC fails to manage their intellectual property. And so Dick Giordano said, great, let's do it, but um, go ahead and just make your own characters so that when you mutilate them it doesn't ruin our little sandbox. So Alan, Moore, Alan Moore's storyline, um, in the storyline, the uh, peacemaker over there, a character who, quote, loves peace so much he's willing to fight for it. You really can't make this stuff up. Uh, becomes the comedian, Eddie Blake. What would Captain America be like if he worked for Richard Nixon and did all his dirty work? Well, there you go. Captain Adam, powered by the elemental forces of nuclear physics, able to manipulate matter and energy, time and space, becomes Dr. Manhattan. Former nuclear physicist John Osterman blasted to smithereens in an accident. He reforms his body by sheer force of will, becoming the only truly superpowered being in Watchmen's world. The question, detective in the night, defender of all that is just and true, even if that means bloodying some knuckles, becomes Rorschach, Walter Kovacs, a, mm, I guess we'll say, damaged individual who's not afraid to inflict damage in the service of the good and true, even though the world is a black void with no inherent meaning whatsoever. Rorschach is burdened with a few contradictions. And then Blue Beetle, a relatively normal dude who fights crime with super gadgets, becomes Night Owl, Dan Dryberg. He's a big nerd, he's got tons of money, and he just does not feel right unless he's dressing up like a bird and fighting crime. Silk Spectre, Lori Uspechik, is actually based on several super women of the Golden and Silver Ages, including Phantom Lady over there and the Black Canary, each one compelled to dress up like a pinup girl and pound on the bad guys. And then Thunderbolt, finally, our sixth main character. Orphan who learned to perfect body and mind in a Himalayan lamasery becomes Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, self-made superhero styled the smartest man in the world, obsessed with Alexander the Great and Egyptian death cults, believes he is destined to save the world. What could possibly go wrong? All right. And so the book is written and drawn and published and people did notice. It was definitely something special that happened here. All right. Okay. We've already mentioned, uh, okay, what makes Watchmen so good? 
We've already mentioned how, as a revisionist story, Watchmen combined genre elements from children's stories with new levels of meaning and complexity. On some level, Watchmen addresses the question, what would superheroes be like in the real world? But we cannot forget that it's the high quality of the writing and art that makes Watchmen so compelling, above and beyond any realism that motivated the story and the characters and themes. So I want to talk next about the formal innovations in Watchmen, aspects of the art and writing that truly elevate both the comic book as an art form and the genre of superheroes. It's well known that Moore and Gibbons structured the page layouts for Watchmen on a rigid nine-panel grid, nine vertical rectangles all the same size, mirroring the proportions of the comic book page itself. Here on the left, you can see um, the even pacing created by the grid, giving equal emphasis to each moment in Rorschach's search for evidence. On the right, we see some variations on the grid. In the bottom, combining several panels into one to give more emphasis to this moment um, in the story, to invite the reader to dwell longer here and consider the symbolic significance of the flowers laid on the grave. Moore Gibbons based their grid on one that was fairly common in older comics, and particularly the comics drawn by Steve Ditko, creator of The Question and co-creator with Stan Lee of Spider-Man. Here he is in his studio. We should note here that not only is the grid a self-conscious homage to Ditko, but so is the character of Rorschach, um, based on a character created by Ditko, The Question, as in part an embodiment of the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Ditko was a devotee of Rand and her objectivist ideas very, very quickly that Reality exists independent of our minds. It's knowable to us through our senses and logic, and that the goal of our lives should be the pursuit of our own happiness. Greed is good, right is right, wrong is wrong, and never the two shall mix. Just like the colors in Rorschach's mask, there is only black and white, never gray. We should note here that even though Alan Moore had great respect for Ditko as an artist, he did not share Ditko's philosophy. Moore has written about this, but he did respect the fact that Ditko had strong beliefs and stood by them. Moore would rather you had bad ideals than that you had none at all. Here we see a fantastic two-page spread showing another variation on the grid, as well as incredible skill at creating a bilaterally symmetrical design um, on two pages, while at the same time depicting this violent action. This spread is part of a chapter, chapter five of Watchmen, titled Fearful Symmetry. The title referring, of course, to Rorschach's mask in part, but also to the layout of the art and to thematic symmetries within the story also. These two pages, pages 14 and 15, uh, left and right, form the centerpiece of the chapter. As we've noted, they depict dynamic dramatic action, but they also stand still and in perfect balance as a piece of fine art. Now, the crazy thing about this chapter is that the entire thing, all 28 pages is bilaterally symmetrical in this way. One back and one forward, pages 13 and 16, are symmetrical just like this, and so on, until we get to the first page and the last. All right, so this is page one and page 28. The layout, as you see, is symmetrical, as are the colors, as well as the angles and vectors within the panels. And way beyond anything I have time to talk about, there's even thematic symmetries between the panels. The fact that they did that is mind-boggling. Right? If you know what I'm talking about here. Of course, we can't have a discussion of the artistic quality of Watchmen without looking at the symbolic layering in the panels. By the way, the, not, it's not the entire Watchmen that that's why, it's just chapter five. 
um, we can't have a discussion about the artistic quality of Watchmen without looking at the symbolic layering in the panels. Here, seemingly random background details actually comment on the story. Who watches the Watchmen? Graffiti on a garage, and also a quote from the Roman poet Juvenal, meaning who guards the guardians? And of course, this is the source of the title of the whole book, um, The Watchmen. You guys know that there's no superhero team called The Watchmen, right? Pale Horse is a reference to a musical group, see that right down there, um, in, uh, in the stories world, but it's also the horse ridden by death in the book of Revelation, a little foreshadowing perhaps. And of course, obsolete models a specialty, right? Um, refers to the two men we see here, two generations of night owls, superheroes, former superheroes, uh, both retired from a life of fighting crime. Here we see a common trick used throughout the book where the dialogue in one from one scene overlaps with the images of another. Lori, <coughs> I'm sorry, still keeping her figure, right? Um, said by Silk Spectre 1 to her daughter Lori in California, but layered on top of the graveyard in New York. So honey, what brings you to the city of the dead? I mean, without your health, where are you? Where's that? In the grave, of course. It's always very clever, but as you can see, it's also occasionally just a little bit cringeworthy. They do it so often. Here, the layering is used for foreshadowing. Somebody has to save the world, says Captain Metropolis. We see the moment in flashback when Ozymandias realizes his destiny. Flash forward to Ozzy at a funeral and a priest chanting about death and salvation. What could possibly go wrong? All right. Alongside the main story of Watchmen is the parallel story of the Black Freighter. This is the comic within a comic, a narrative that resonates with the main plot and reinforces some of its themes. In these panels, we see more layering of dialogue with images of the in-world comic, a pirate story called the Black Freighter, placed next to dialogue from a news vendor talking about horrific current events. As the boy reads the comic, we continue this shift back and forth between the world of Watchmen and the world of the Black Freighter. Here we see one way in which superheroes have changed Watchmen's world, because in this world superheroes are real, all the comic books are about pirates. Note the visual symmetry between the skull and crossbones and the recurring symbol for the logo of the Gunga Diner, the death's head banner, it flies above us all. What could possibly go wrong? My home and family were doomed. It was then I conceived of building a raft. The boy reads, and the news vendor is talking about escape routes from the city. And here is the grizzly raft, using the corpses of his dead comrades as floats. Our pirate hero is a man so desperate to save his family that he's willing to commit horrific acts toward, the toward that end. And in the end, in his delirium and mania, our sailor ends up killing his own family in his drive to save them. Giant spoilers here. But Ozymandias is kind of sort of like this guy. So here's the point. Just as the Black Freighter resonates with Watchmen, so does Watchmen resonate with our world. This is just one of the many thematic symmetries within the comic. I could go on for days on this. Right. And here, oh, yep. And here is another one. 
what I like to call the play within the comic, the conversations that happen among minor characters in and around the newsstand, the occupants of a cityscape that we see layered with objects, words and details that resonate with the plot and themes. Watchmen is full of these world-building bu bu world panels. Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, a night in 1938 when Nazis in Germany torched synagogues, shattered windows, and killed close to 100 Jews. Again, here we see a band name, Kristallnacht, painted as graffiti, giving us dark foreshadowing of events that will happen later in the comic. Moore and Gibbons make sure the reader knows that the presence of superheroes would actually change the world in very significant ways. Genetic engineering, turkeys with four legs, you see there, attitudes towards sexuality, an openly gay couple out to dinner was really not common in 1985. Even the shapes of cigarettes have somehow been altered by the presence of superheroes. You know it's an alternate history when there are blimps, right? And electric cars, superheroes, mostly Dr. Manhattan, have inspired both new technologies and new social mores. Weirdly, in a lot of old superhero tales, the world remains remarkably like our own, in spite of aliens, magic, and super craziness. So Watchmen is more realistic, precisely because it shows how the world would really be different if there were, was a being who could manipulate matter and energy with his will. In many ways, Watchmen is more of a science fiction what-if story than it is a traditional superhero story. And so that gets us to the can of beans. Rorschach breaks into his friend's flat and helps himself to a snack. Heinz baked beans, 58 varieties. Wait, wait, no, you mean 57 varieties, right? The real world plus superheroes equals 58. I must note Julian Darius in uh, his essay, <coughs> 58 Varieties, Watchmen and Revisionism, he's the guy that came up with that. And wait, you, you go like, that's just crazy. That's absurd. Like, we're talking about a detail that's a couple millimeters high on the side of a label you can barely see in one panel. We're supposed to read meaning into that? A welcome to Watchmen. Remember, this is the writer who wrote that on the left to describe to the artist how to draw that on the right. That's page one, panel one of Watchmen. That's what Elmore wrote in the script. Notice how Dave Gibbons actually highlighted the things he actually needed to draw. <laughs> all right. And so with all this exploration of the formal innovations in Watchmen, we begin to see something that might be contradictory. All of these artistic tricks come across as, well, kind of artificial. Um, doesn't that work against the whole notion that Watchmen is meant to be realistic? It's really easy to get caught up in this notion that Watchmen is the book that, quote, shows us how superheroes would be in the real world. We can debate whether the story actually does that until the cows come home, but ultimately I think it's not a helpful question to dwell on. It's not the main point of the book. The point of the book is to present an alternate world, different from both old comics and the real world in distinctive ways, and by highlighting those differences, Watchmen functions like a microscope, helping us look deeply at both our literature and our reality. So let's not dwell on the unimportant issues. Let's look deeply at the story and characters of Watchmen and listen to what they have to say on their own terms. Let's instead look at how Moore, Gibbons, and Higgins create depth 
not just by making interesting complex characters, but also by contrasting them, as you see here, and playing them off each other. At its core, Watchmen is a murder mystery. Someone has killed the comedian, Eddie Blake, and several of our heroes are trying to figure out who done it and who may also be targeting them. So we're going to explore this plot and we're going to do it in the same way that Moore wrote it, by exploring the arc of each of the six main characters. Each character has a self-image at the beginning of the story, an ideology that defines their core identity and values. For some of them, like the comedian here, um, this is also their superhero identity. The comedian sees himself as the one who tells it like it is. Once you figure out what the joke is, being the comedian is the only thing that makes sense. Here he's reminding his fellow adventurers that beating up muggers is unlikely to stop nuclear Armageddon. As a microscope on our world, we can see the comedian as a dark reflection of the hedonism of Hugh Hefner with the real politique of Dick Cheney. The comedian likes it when things get weird. He doesn't mind spending time in the shadows when called on to do so. This dark Captain America actually does work for Richard Nixon. He helps him win the Vietnam War and usher in his campaign for a fourth term of office. Eddie Blake is most happy working in the shadows, getting the job done, and apparently enjoying himself while he's there. As we might expect, he does horrible, inhuman things <coughs> throughout the book. Shooting a pregnant woman in the chest. Attempting to rape one of his fellow superheroes. This man is an utterly corrupted soul who seems incapable of a shred of empathy or decency, and yet, Later, we find him attempting to make a small human connection with his estranged daughter, Silk Spectre, at the, sorry, spoiler, at the time not aware that he is her father. And when he stumbles upon someone's plot to change the world, he's finally rendered incapable of laughter. Apparently there is something too dark even for the comedian. And so by showing how the comedian both espouses an ideology a superhero persona, and also acts in ways contradictory to it, Moore gives, is giving his characters a more realistic psychology. And he's also critiquing earlier superhero stories with their constant infallible heroes. Think 1950s Superman. The world is breaking, but Rorschach knows that when some part of it breaks, he will be there, the dark avenger, the master detective to solve the crime and right the wrongs. Traumatized by an abusive mother, tormented by other children, Rorschach ultimately finds solace in his calling as a superhero. At about mid-career, however, he just snaps, confronted with a crime so dark that he burns the perpetrator alive. And from that moment on, he sees Rorschach as his true identity and Walter Kovacs as a mask. Caught in an internal ping-pong match between the libertarian ideals of Rand and the existential meaninglessness of nihilism, that's uh, Friedrich Nietzsche down there. Right. Um, <coughs> Rorschach has no problem breaking fingers to get information or snapping a child molester's neck. And yet, he shows empathy for a former enemy, letting him keep his illegal but useless cancer medication. He even lets a criminal go when he sees himself in the eyes of her son. Dr. Manhattan sees us as ants. Time, space, and matter are transparent to him, and the petty concerns of small human lives barely register in his godlike intellect, or so he thinks. 
His atoms were ripped to shreds in something called an intrinsic field subtractor, yet somehow he was able to reconstruct himself molecule by molecule. Life and death are unquantifiable abstracts. Why should I be concerned, says Dr. M. This guy is not winning any points with Laurie over here. There are no people in our world that we can compare to Dr. Manhattan because he is post-human. He has a mind that perceives the entire history of the universe happening at once. How could we possibly imagine what it would be like? And yet, when someone accuses him of giving cancer to the people close to him, he has a temper tantrum and runs away to Mars. Kind of weird behavior for a god. And by the end of the story, he's recovered a feeling for humanity, almost cracking a smile when he sees his former lover happy with her new companion. And yet, he is still ready to leave our universe, anxious to go somewhere less complicated, remember that, and create some new life. Perhaps beings like Dr. Manhattan are the way universes reproduce. Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. Sounds a little bit ominous to me. At the beginning of Watchmen, Dan Dryberg is not a superhero. He was one, long ago, but most of the world doesn't know that. He's retired, he had to do it, and he's okay with it, right? And yet, when defending himself against a group of muggers, something begins to awaken him. Lori, too. They've made a connection to each other and a, a part of their lives they thought was long gone. It's not quite enough to get all his mojo back, sadly for him and Lori, but then he has a dream, a revelation. He begins to question which part of him is the mask and which is the real man. If Dan starts the story as Ellen, the talk show host, before she came out, this is the point where she announces that she's gay. Finally putting his costume back on, Dan Dryberg rediscovers his night owl self and unlike most of the other superheroes in the book, the first thing he does is go out and actually help people. Perhaps there is some way of conceiving of a superhero that is not all about having the power to exact violent revenge. He's rescuing a bunch of people from a burning building here. And as an added bonus, a swashbuckling act of compassion is exactly what Dan needed to get his mojo back. That and the costume, of course. Now he's ready to spring his old pal, oh yeah, there you go. His mojo back. He's ready to spring his old pal Rorschach from prison. Again, another act of compassion. Lori Uspechik also used to be a superhero, but now she's a person whose entire life is conditioned by other people's wants and needs. She started superheroing because her mother pushed her into it, the original Silk Spectre. And now she rejects everything about it simply despite her mother. She allows herself to play the role of kept woman. Dr. Manhattan's girlfriend, performing the essential function of keeping the most powerful man in the world contented and happy. Lori is Tina Turner before she left Ike. Right. And when I say that, I don't mean that Alan Moore was basing it literally on Tina Turner. I mean that we can see in Tina Turner's story a parallel. That all happened, well, probably around the same time as Watchmen. So when Lori's identity fails, it's a good thing. She's finally taking on her own needs. Right? She's taking her own needs into consideration, and she walks out on him. She's going to choose a partner she thinks is right for her. 
It's Lori who eventually convinces Dr. Manhattan that human beings have some worth in them after all and brings him home from Mars. And by the end of the story, she's even learned how to connect with her mom rather than constantly defining herself in contrast to the elder Silk Spectre. Adrian Veidt quit being a superhero before they made it illegal. He saw it coming a mile away. By the time they passed that law, he had already moved on to business ventures and was 20 moves ahead of the rest of the world. Like Dr. Manhattan, he looks down on us from a great height. But unlike Dr. M, <clears throat> Ozymandias is deeply invested in changing the world. He's the only one smart enough and daring enough to do it. Adrian Veidt is Steve Jobs. He knows he has both the power to change the world and the inalienable right to do so. If he has to kill, I'm sorry, spoiler warning. <laughs> if he has to kill the comedian and manipulate Dr. Manhattan into leaving Earth, well, those are just sacrifices that must be made. Killing the man you yourself hired to fake an assassination attempt on yourself, par for the course. Faking an alien invasion by creating a giant monster corpse and teleporting it into the heart of Manhattan, right, in order to scare the nuclear powers into cooperating against a common foe? I mean, why wouldn't you do that, right? It's Tuesday. Three million killed, well, you know, sacrifices have to be made to save the world from Armageddon. But he's not cold. He's not heartless. Look at those tears of joy when he succeeded at his great plan. And when his only true friend is killed, I mean the cat, not Dr. Manhattan, is sacrificed along the way, he appears genuine to have genuine remorse. Veidt knows that the only person who can possibly share his understanding of the world, the only person who he would dare ask validate his completely insane plan is the post-human himself. Did I do right in the end? Of course, Dr. Manhattan knows that nothing ever ends. And so we get to the end of the story, the last panel. Amazingly, the villain's evil plan has actually succeeded. The world would surely tear itself to shreds if it knew the truth. But our surviving heroes have apparently decided that that would be too big of a risk. Rorschach was against it, of course, and that's why he's toast. But he did write it all down in his journal and send it off to the crazy right-wing newspaper, the only one he trusts to read. What could possibly go wrong? Okay. <laughs> so that's a lot, really quickly. What are we supposed to make of all this? That was one weird superhero story. Where is Superman, right? Where, where is that hero that I know is just and true and right and I know that the author is telling me I should be identifying with? Who am I supposed to agree with? Right? Let's ask Alan Moore. No, I don't think there is a center to the book, he says. I mean, part of what Watchmen was, was about is that all the characters have got very, very distinctive views of the world, but they're all completely different. Ultimately, it's the reader who has to make the choice. It's the reader's decision. It's the reader's world. Ultimately, as I say in the last panel, I leave it entirely in your hands. That <coughs> It's up to the reader to formulate their own response to the world, sort of, and not to be told what to do by a superhero or a political leader or a comic book writer, for that matter. 
This is a quote that I got from uh, a book called um, The Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore, 2002, uh, an interview with George Corey. So Watchmen is not a philosophical essay with a set of pat conclusions at the end. It's more like a test to elicit from each of us our own view of the world. It's a magic spell that makes us confront our own worldview. It's cool. You know, there was this psychologist, this Swiss guy, who came up with a test, a psychological test that was designed to do exactly this, to reveal the unique way in which each of us sees the world. So Watchman is a Rorschach test. All right, so that's all well and good. But it sure does seem like a lot of these characters, as well as people who read the book, come to the conclusion that nihilism, the utter meaninglessness of life, seems to be the subtext for the story. Heck, maybe it's even the text, right? The comedian is completely and utterly stuck in a nihilistic mode. Rorschach, he just, you know, he's ready to, you know, just pound on people because everything is meaningless. Um, and of course, we get a sense of that from Ozymandias' plot, too. But I really don't think so. I think this story is about the intrinsic field. Ah, this is just where they're doing the intrinsic field experiments, says the nuclear technician to John Osterman before he gets turned into Dr. Manhattan. It's like, what if there's some field holding stuff together apart from gravity? But, of course, this is just fake comic book science, right? There is no actual intrinsic field in physics in our world. Sure, probably, but that's not the point. If Watchmen is a Rorschach test, eliciting from us our own worldview, there's something that Alan Moore has subliminally hidden inside that test. A mysterious force that causes even the most horrible human being to seek out a moment of intimacy, that causes a woman who thinks her father is a monster to suggest at the end of the book that she's ready to follow in his footsteps. <clears throat> I want a better costume that protects me, maybe something leather with a mask, and maybe I ought to carry a gun. She's going to be in the new TV show, too. A mysterious force, the intrinsic field, that causes a psychotic sociopath to have sympathy for a young boy. A mysterious force that causes an aloof god to smile at the happiness of his friends. A mysterious force that causes people to ask for and give forgiveness. But alas, there is no intrinsic force in the real world like that, right? All right. So, 1987, Watchmen is over. Now what? Holy cow, nothing would ever be the same in superhero comics ever again. This level of art, this depth in humanity, what great works inspired by this masterpiece await us in the 1990s? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure about this. <laughs> Is this what Alan Moore meant? Superheroes are grim and gritty and should do awful things because that's what they would be like in the real world? Is that the lesson of Watchmen? And this is not from the 90s, but I put that up there as an illustration of it. Have you guys seen Man of Steel? Oh, it broke my heart more than any other film in the history of the universe. Superman does not snap anybody's neck, even if he feels really bad about it after he does it. 
Fortunately, the 90s didn't last forever. There are countless amazing works of superhero fiction that are inspired by both the gritty realism of Watchmen and the humanity. Alas, if I had hours and hours to talk about it, I could list more of them. Brian Michael Bendis, creator of Jessica Jones, um, read his stuff. He, le he left Marvel and now he's at DC, so read Superman. He's writing Superman right now, pretty awesome. Um, anything that Tom King writes, I could go on and on, but I don't have time to do that right now. So maybe at this point you're impressed by this revisionist superhero story. You're saying to yourself, man, I had no idea. No idea that superheroes could deal with such complex and compelling themes. Or maybe you're saying, big whoop. I see lots of stories like this. Superheroes and also science fiction and fantasy. They deal with more mature themes. They have more artistic value. I don't get why Watchmen is such a big deal, right? And if you are saying that, my friends, that is only because you are living in a post-Watchmen world. I've never seen this show. Have any of you guys seen it? Yeah? But I just looked at it and I said, all right, we've gotten there. <laughs> right? Who would have thought to revise the Archie Comics characters as a dark, mysterious, brooding, angsty teen drama? Have you ever seen it, Troy? So lots of stuff in TV. I mean, we're living in the golden area of television, right? That's what they tell us. And somebody has to go out there and count how many of these new TV shows are based on comic book properties or genre properties that have been revised in just this way, right? Take a little Lord of the Rings, take some Conan the Barbarian and Michael Moorcock, throw in a little actual history of medieval Europe, and make the characters incredibly flawed and interesting and compelling, right? Lev Grossman, the uh, author on the left, wrote this book called The Magicians. I've never read the book. It's been on my list for a while. But I did see some of the uh, sci-fi show they made from it. Take a little Harry Potter, take a little Chronicles of Narnia, and basically have the characters be flawed, sex-crazed uh, college students. And you got The Magicians. Incidentally, Lev Grossman over there on the left is the writer that Time Magazine hired, him and a couple other people, to put together that list of the 100 best English language novels since 1923. So he was the guy who decided that Watchmen belonged on that list. He thinks highly of the book. Right. Watchmen itself has been given the revisionist treatment. There's a couple of comic books that have come out, a whole series uh, of mini-series, it's like four of them, called Before Watchmen that trace the lives of the characters before the beginning of the story of Watchmen. I liked a lot of it. Some of it I thought was kind of flawed, but I liked most of it. It's mostly an homage to Watchmen that it is something that really revises it very much. Um, the book on the right is called Doomsday Clock, and this is not finished yet. The series is still coming out. I think there's one more issue yet to come. Are you reading Doomsday Clock, Troy? Yeah. And it's a little different. It's, it's interesting. Jeff Johns is the writer. Um, he's you know, a really well-established writer at DC Comics, and now he's one of the executives there. And his idea for this book is just too good to, to give up, right? Okay, so here's the deal. In the real world, in our world, Watchmen changed superhero stories forever. All of a sudden, everybody had to make their superheroes psychologically gritty, right, and do awful, com you know, make compromises, work in the gray area, right? And this even happened in the DC universe. You can trace it by looking at all the different versions of Superman that they've gone through since 1987. They keep revamping him and trying to make him more edgy, right? 
So this is happening in our world. Superhero writers are being influenced by the book Watchmen, and they're trying to, they keep trying to revise Superman, right? And what Jeff Johns is saying in this book is that what happened is Dr. Manhattan decided to leave the, D the Watchmen universe for a, a, a galaxy less complicated. And what he meant when he said that was he was going to go through an interdimensional portal into the DC universe. And there, discovering this simpler world, he was going to start experimenting with Superman by constantly changing his identity and seeing how that rippled out and changed the DC universe from that one moment on, since Superman is the primal superhero, right? In other words, it's a complete metafictional riff where what's happening within the universes of Watchmen and DC Comics mirrors what happened in the real world with writers being influenced by Watchmen. Jeff Johns is a nut. And this is the part here where at the end of issue one, Clark Kent wakes up from a nightmare and says to his wife, Lois, if you're not aware of this, they're married now. I can't remember the last time you had a nightmare, says Lois. Lois, I don't think I've ever had one. So this is Dr. Manhattan mucking with Clark Kent, right? It's kind of brilliant. And you have to be a total geeky nerd probably to get into this stuff, but it's cool. Okay. And then finally, remember this guy, Damon Lindelof, the co-creator of Lost. He said, this is the greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced. As a boy, he loved this comic, right? And of course, nothing ever ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. And so this is what we're getting on October 20th, the Watchmen television show, right? Damon Lindelof is producing it, and he's one of the writers on it. What's it going to be, right? They're being very coy about this, which is good. They're not letting a lot of information. So there's not, not a lot I can say about the plot, but I do know that he has stated this is not an adaptation of Watchmen. It's not going to be a remake of the movie, right? He is assuming that all the events of the comic book took place 30 years prior to the story starting. So it's happening in the world of Watchmen, but in our present day, right? And things have changed, right? <laughs> he said that he's basically remixing the elements of Watchmen and really just creating his own story that refers back to a lot of these characters. So obviously, we have a whole group of people that seem to have been inspired by Rorschach, and I can only guess they are not going to be up to anything good but we'll have to wait and see on April 20th uh, what they are. So Damon Lindelof, he loved this book as a child, the comic books of his childhood, and so he digested it and he tore it apart. And he's remaking something that he would like to read in the present day. He's revising Watchmen, and you better believe that Alan Moore is not, not happy about it. <laughs> right? He's stated this, stated this a lot. He does not appreciate people adapting his works. He thinks that they have no right to do so. And Damon Lindelof is fully aware of this fact. And he's fully aware that the fans are going to be kind of really wary of this, right? And so he wrote an open letter and posted it on Instagram. And I'm going to just read a little bit from that letter. Mr. Moore has made it abundantly clear that he doesn't want anyone to adapt his work. To do so is hubris. Worth, worse yet, it's unethical. There are a million ways to rationalize unethical behavior. I could argue that Mr. Moore's partner, the brilliant artist Dave Gibbons, is equally entitled to authorize access to his masterwork and that he's been kind enough to offer us his blessing to do so. Or I could offer that Mr. Moore cut his veined teeth 
on the creations of others. Batman, Superman, Captain Britain, Marvel Man. He'll never be Miracle Man to me. Swamp Thing and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not to mention the Charlton characters on which his Watchmen characters are based. So am I not allowed to do the same? No, I am not. I am not allowed, and yet I am compelled. And Mr. Moore has every right to disagree with him. He has every right to not want anyone to adapt his works. But there is, in the end, only one thing we can say to Alan Moore. <laughs> Thank you very much.